What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you again, Intelligence Squared, for inviting me to chair this session. So, in the midst of this current moment that we're living in, at the intersection of what one of our guests has called the triple threat of COVID-19, white supremacy and economic fragility, where does art and culture fit in? Why is it important for the arts to engage with and then fundamentally transform, particularly in the response to the Black Lives Matter movement? The art a society creates tells a story of who we think we are and who we want to be. So to explore this today, we have two incredible trailblazers from the arts joining us. Firstly, we have Idris Elba. He's an A-list Hollywood star, an actor, writer and producer, perhaps best known for his starring roles in The Wire and Luther, and for playing Nelson Mandela in the film Mandela, Long Walk to Freedom. He runs his own production company, Green Door Pictures, which champions a diversity of thought. And he's been a DJ since his teens, collaborating with artists including Fatboy Slim and Skepta, and has played Coachella. In 2018, People magazine voted him sexiest man alive, as my mum would say, Allah, brother. Kwame Kwe Awa is also with us today. I'm ex- super excited to also welcome him, artistic director of the Young Vic Theatre. And were it not for the pandemic, his production of Hamlet, starring Kush Jumbo and Ruth Nager, would currently be playing there. Before joining the Young Vic, he was the artistic director of the Baltimore Centre Stage. And his award-winning play, Elmina's Kitchen, transferred from the National to, to the Garrick Theatre in 2005. His series of eight short films, Soon Gone, A Windrush Chronicle, was shown on BBC4 in 2019. So, thank you both so much for joining us today. And Kwame, I'm going to start with you. We've just heard that in the UK, the government has announced the reopening of theatres on July the 4th, but they will not be able to stage live performances, which seems a relatively important thing for a live performance venue. Given, as you've called it, the triple threat of this moment, how are you feeling about where we are right now? Well, how I'm feeling, first of all, is that um, I-, I was waiting for you to tell me, or at least announce, where I was voted the sexiest person in the world. <laughs> <laughs> and that I hope really? was, that I hope was in my household. But, <laughs> but actually, I, I just got to say, and, and, and I would say that, that in this room, I, I did a quick check, and I think that you've got like, I don't know, 80,000 followers on Twitter. And it just got like 2 million. So I'm like the boy here. I'm just going to let you know that like I got the most to prove in this room. Um, <laughs> but on a serious note, um, on a serious note, you know, it, it's a very hard time. Um, and I think you framed the question um, really well. 
that we can open the theatres, and that's just a legal technicality, but we cannot perform. We can't even really have a bar in there just yet until, until we get the, the go-ahead from Public Health England and, and the government. I think one of the hardest things about being a gatekeeper, about being an artistic director of an institution, particularly uh, in a place like London, you know, in a multicultural, intellectual, in a, it's a soulful space, London. And, uh, and our artistic community are soulful and spirited people. And so at this time, while we're amid the triple threat, uh, my theatre would be alive and buzzing with people wanting to put on art, with intellectuals wanting to discuss, with young people wanting to come in and find out how they can contribute using the weapon of choice or their weapon of choice, art. And so it's a really hard time to not know that um, not know when I can put my art back on on our stages and facilitate that kind of discussion. Um, I'm a hardwired optimist. I believe that that we are going to store the energy of this time, and when we can open our doors again, the 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 power that's going to explode on our stages and vibrate through into our audiences is going to be like nothing that we have ever witnessed before. And that's just not my stage, but across the stages of, of Great Britain. Idris, I see you nodding. Do you, does that resonate? Yeah, very much. I mean, <clears throat> I'd almost, you know, hello, Yasmin, good to meet you as well. Um, but I'd almost, you know, replace the word art with voice, you know, how do we, you know, you take away my art, you take away my voice, you take away my expression, you know, in, in many different art forms. You take that away, you, you, then, you know, there's no way I can release what I'm thinking, how I'm feeling. Uh, there's no way for you to reflect on my art, on how you're feeling and what you're thinking. And that is a pressure cooker for disaster in a community, in, in, in a culture, in a, in a place like London, in a place like England where we um you know we're used to sharing our voices we're you know we're used to that you know and some of the mo biggest moments of change or or outcry have come either through our arts or through you know uprising and that again is our voice so you know i agree with kwame you know it's uh and i also believe that you know when 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 we do get to a place like kwame said I think it will be a very explosive time. I think it will be a, 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 a very expressionate time. Um, and by the way, good and bad. And by good and bad, I mean, you know, what you're seeing at the moment is a real uprising on, on, on the negative side, on the right wing side, on the, on the, you know, people that have extreme views. But that uprising is okay because we need to let go of stuff. You know, you, you can't kill our voices. We have to be able to, to express ourselves, you know? And on the topic of uprisings, I mean, Kwame, this is not your first, this is not your first rodeo. This is not your first uprising. How do you think this generation's display of resistance is different to what's come before? Oh, I think that's a magnificent question. And I would say that Idris and I um, have known each other for, for many decades. And so it, it wouldn't be Idris's first ride through this uh, uprising either. And, and I think, you know, the, the uprisings of the 80s 
um, on the on the streets of Brixton and Toxteth and nationwide, the the back end of the 80s, the second wave. I would say looking at uh, 2011 and that across the country. I was in Baltimore in 2015, and when that uprising, the first Black Lives Matter uprising, really happened, and now here, and so this is like uprising number five. Um, and, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's quite fatiguing, if there is such a word, that when my 15-year-old son says, Dad, can I go to the march in central London amid the mortal threat that is COVID? And when I say why, that he speaks about, you know, the knee on my neck from white oppression and structural inequality is, 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 harder than the threat of COVID. And that when he said, and I'm now my generation is going to fix it. And there's a connotation that, that my generation didn't and the generation before didn't. And history has a bigger razor. History forgets the things that went before. My generation in the 1980s, we stood on the backs of those who marched from Deptford into central London about the death in Deptford of, of, of many young black teenagers. Having said that, I am magnificently inspired, in particular, by young black women at this moment. Young black women have said, we got you, black men. We know at this moment in time that even though we are being killed, too, that your mere presence provokes an existential angst, which means that you have to be destroyed and put down from Amy Cooper to George Floyd. And what have our black women done from those who are leading Black Lives Matter, both in the United States and here? Our sisters have galvanized. Our sisters have said, brothers, we see you. You are our fathers and our uncles and our brothers and our fathers. And we got you. We can't take no more of that. That's an old uh, kind of my age generation. And, thank you, thank you, Driss. Thank you, Driss. But and so I'm magnificently proud of the way that they have galvanized, at the way that they have spoken truth, not just to power, but to a different kind of ear. And that's the that's what they have created. Your generation right now, your generation has, in my opinion, have created a deeper listening. Now, how long that listening will last for is also up to my generation, Idris's and I's generation and yours to hold hands and make sure that we can find the way to both be inside the house and outside the house, to make the noise outside of the house so that those inside the house can whisper in the ears of our colleagues and say, you know what, what they're saying out there is truth and you need to fix this house. Idris, you're inside the house, right? So how does it, I mean, how different is this moment of listening, do you think? Just building off what Kwame said. And sorry to, sorry to cut you there, Kwame. What, what does the inside the house mean? Sorry, Yasmin. Well, I mean, perhaps, perhaps this is, and it's a good question back at me. I take inside the house to be someone who's made it within the system at the moment and the way that the system is currently set up. And both of you have managed to find a way through a system that is not designed necessarily for you to succeed. Um, and I'm really curious about 
how you navigate how you navigate a system that's not built for you to succeed, succeeding despite all of that, and what you do when you get there. Um, well, look, you know, when someone says to me, you're in the house, it makes me think of you're a house Negro, which makes me think that oh, no, sorry. you're safe. No, I'm not saying you meant that, but it does have the same connotations that, well, you're doing good, you're safe inside. And, you know, <clears throat> from my perspective, success has not uh, negated racism for me, you know, like, you know, you, asking me about racism is like, you know, asking me about... You, you know, how, how long have I been breathing? You understand? It's like the first time you have any consciousness around your skin is usually about racism, less about, you know, mummy telling me you've got beautiful black skin and you're handsome, more about, wait, I'm different from him and I'm also being treated different from him. That's one of the first consciousness I had as a child. So that stays with you regardless of whether you become, you know, successful or you beat the system you said despite, I believe that we did it in spite of that. You know what I mean? We, 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 you know, in my opinion, I teach my children. I have a six-year-old and, a, and an 18-year-old. And I'm always saying just lead by example. Lead by example. If, you know, you, if someone answers the question into you and you know the answer, don't wait for everybody else to put their hands up. So if you know the answer, lead by example. And in my case, you know, knowing the answer was just getting on with it, you know, getting on with it. And that is really about, you know, how people are programmed. I'm programmed to chase my dreams. I'm programmed to let no man put me under. I'm programmed that way. Not everyone is. And sometimes there is a knee on your neck or there is a, a foot on your, on, your, on your foot to holding you back 100%. But regardless of that, the way I'm wired is to just keep going. And what's happened is I named my company Green Door because essentially someone said it to me the other day, because I want to leave the door open for the next man. And the door's green. Ha ha, pun. Get it? See what I did there? But, you know, <laughs> yeah. but essentially that, that's why Green Door is that, because I really do want to lead by example, leave the door open for the next man. I think we should uh, always think about looking forward. We can spend a lot of time talking about where we've come from. We could talk about why we're here. But what we should be thinking about is where we're going. You know, if you put something nasty in your mouth, you're not thinking about keeping it there and discovering why it's so nasty. You want to take it out and put something good in your mouth. And that is how we evolve. You know, that's how we grow. So that's how that's how I've approached it, Yasmin. I appreciate that. And thank you um, for clarifying that, because I for two reasons. One, um, because I think sometimes we can make the mistake of thinking racism is something we can outperform when that's never the case. We can't outwork, you know, our blackness. Um, and also the fact that you would characterize it as in spite, um, I think, is a, is a nuanced difference, but it's really useful um, and important to put forward. So thank you. I'm going to come... I'm going to come back to you, Kwame, in a sec, but I'm also going to ask you, Idris, about your production company, because I know that you talk about this concept of diversity of thought. And the reason that that twigged for me was diversity of thought was also the same phrase that the health minister, Matt Hancock, used to erase or hide the fact that there were no black people in cabinet. He said, ah, oh, well, we have diversity of thought. So I'm really curious about how you interpret diversity of thought. I didn't know that. Um, well, <laughs> Look, you know, diversity of thought came 
uh, as a way of describing how we think about, and this is very specific around how we think about changing the ratio in the film industry. Let's see some more black and brown women, uh, LGBT communities in the storytelling process. And how do you do that? You diversify your thought of how you process stories. You know, many filmmakers will tell you that, black, brown filmmakers will tell you, they'll go to a commissioner and the commissioner will compare their story to what's there, what's come before, what's similar. The diversification of thought is nowhere. It's just here, okay? So that was where that term came from. We need to diversify our thought in order to be able to reconfigure the film industry so we can see a lot more culture, see a lot more of the spectrum that is London, the London I grew up in. So that's where that came from. And, you know, Green Door essentially is a hub for me to sort of harness that, try and put it to practice, you know. And we're very proud of the sort of track record thus far, you know, from a, if I'm honest and I'll be, you know, transparent as a successful production company, we're, we're, you know, we're trudging along, carrying this big old heavy rucksack. But from a point of view of opening the door and diversifying, diversifying our thought and how we uh, accept and uh, work with writers of the spectrum, we've really, you know, we, we look at a project and if it doesn't tick those boxes, we tend not to just put it away. So that's how Green Door is. I'm proud of what we've done there. And there's still so much more to go, so much more work to do, so much more sort of sophistication of the device of diversifying your thought, thought because there are so many variables that keep coming up. And storytelling challenges are so different now. You know, you, at once the time, the Holy Grail was to work at, at, at Kwame's Theatre and have a moment or at the National or on the big silver screen or the BBC. Now you just have a real chocolate box of places to put your content. And thinking about that thought process is really like, you know, it's a changing, it's always changing. So, um, but it, I for, see, for, yeah, ooh, I'm just going to jump in. Sorry, um, Kwame, I see you nodding a lot there. And I'm going to bring in another thread, which is, you know, you're, you're in the theatre world, which is, especially in England, very white. And so how do you navigate creating work that is nuanced and talking about the black experience in nuanced ways for a very white trustee board, for a very white audience and doing doing that work in a way that has integrity? Yes, um, in, in, a, in a myriad of fashions and, and exactly, I, I think, in the way that Idris has spoken about, but by, by leading with neurodiversity, right? Like, like ethnic diversity and gender diversity is great, but neurodiversity is really important to be able to have people around you who think in completely and utterly different ways to you and to the environment. So when I walked into my theatre, oh, go, go. I was going to jump in, actually. So I'm going to challenge both of you a little bit on that, because bringing in people with different um, ways of thinking doesn't necessarily reflect the fact that different people come in the room with different levels of power, different experiences and so on. How do you navigate for the fact that, you know, this queer woman who's walked into your room, for example, might not have the same amount of power and leverage and even capacity to bring to the table in the same way that, you know, um, a, a white man who's gone to Oxford, for example. Like, how do you navigate all of the, the different intersections at that one table? 
I, I would say this. I am not the colored version of the thing that walked before me. I walk into my space as an African, as a diasporic African. That doesn't just mean that I'm there to tick a box in terms of color. It means that the culture that I have to create in my organization has to fall to my right foot as a diasporic African. If you'll excuse the football analogy, I don't know very much about football, but alas. Um, and so the, 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 the truth of the matter is, is that if there's a queer brown woman in my, at my table, it's on me to make sure that I give her enough space to be her full self. And the way I lead my artistic meetings and the way that my board allows me to lead the theater is that both neuro, ethnic, gender diversity is tremendously important. It's like Idris said, that before you can come to me, you've got to check many of those boxes and you've got to check those boxes, not because they're the leader, but because that's an integral part of you. When you sit at my table, intersectionality needs to be part of your core or you will not be at my table. When I run the theater from the inside, I say, listen, I don't necessarily believe that every decision should be made in a Eurocentric fashion, in an Aristotelian, like here is a destination. I mean, here's the beginning. Here's the destination. We just beat through the agenda. We get to the end. I don't lead my building in that way. I lead my building in. And this may be a generality and I'm happy to stand by it. But I lead it in a way that, that lead, lead, leads with what I might call female dramaturgy, the circular motion of thinking, which is actually the base of the way that African music is created. It goes round and each time it goes round, you add another thing and you add another thing and you add another thing. And before you know it, it goes boom. And so and, it, and the oil comes up in all different places in the in, in the sphere. So your challenge is an absolutely right challenge. But our challenge, it's why I'm so proud of Idris. You know, the first time I landed in the States to take over my theater there, I went to my cousin's house. I switched on the TV and there was Idris, man, collecting an Emmy. I went not he's inside the house, as he said, as a house of the house Negro. I went here. The journey traveled from East London. To collecting that Emmy. That journey traveled where I walk into my rehearsal room and the joke that I did for years is, hi, I'm Idris Elba. And everybody laughed because they went, oh, that's now we know that black Brits exist. That was actually a change, a seismic change in perception. Art and artists, everything in front of us is born of the imagination. And so actually to understand that we have that power that we can do that by looking forward, carrying the luggage of our history in each pocket and every part of us, but having our eyes forward, being intersectional and not trying to imitate a European arc is part of the, the source, is part of the world that I try to create. And if I, if I win, I win not just for me. And if I fail, well, of course, failure uh, is always just for <laughs> oh, that was beautiful. Thank you. And just before I come to you, Idris, um, also, I just want to remind people that are watching that if you want to donate, we're actually today fundraising for the Young Vic. Um, so you've got a donate tab on the right side of your screen. Um, so please go ahead and, and do that. But Idris, I saw you smiling a lot there and nodding, which I love. And I also, and I want to tease out one of, one of the threads that Kwame presented, which is this idea of connecting back to fundamentally different ways of operating. And I'm curious about how how your kind of roots, if we can use that phrase, has impacted the way that you do your art. And, and, and also, how does it, I mean, 
why is it that, you know, if you're a Nigerian rapper, that you have to make it in the West for people to think you've made it? Like, is that something that's changing? Um, yeah. So listen, the, the first question, just to tackle that, you know, growing up in Kwame, you might know this. And Jasmine, you too. You know, my parents were of the school of thought. If you want to make it in this world, you have to be twice as good as the white man. Always said that to me. You have to be twice as good, twice as good. And it became sort of like, you know, a mini mantra in my head. No matter what I was doing, I applied. Whether my talent lied in football, I still applied in cricket, you know, because I was always of that mindset. And when I approached art, art came to me as a God's gift. I'm so thankful I can, I can really touch the cornerstones of art with my heart because I feel it, I know it, right? And it was easy to me. So I applied the same, I need to be better. I need to be better. I need to be better. And by the time that happens, you start acting. You no, know, I started DJing. I'm applying there. I'm applying as an actor. I'm applying as a musician. You know, before you know it, you realize you're quite multifaceted. Like, before you know it, I was decent at football, basketball, cricket, and hockey. You get me? It's because I had that mindset. And the application of that in my art is actually right now the trend that everybody's multifaceted. You know, they realize, and again, to, to cut through the, the tape, you have to have your fingers in many pies. And I know, I know, I've spoken about this with black men before about, yo, I'm good at certain things now that, you know, I never thought would be useful, but I'm so glad I was paying attention. And when I'm holding my own in a room or conversations, people are looking at me like, how do you know that? Because I've been studying, you know, because I've been reading. I've been trying to, you know, and now I can apply those skills. Um, listen, I think the, 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 the plates have shifted in terms of if you're Nigerian, that you need to be accepted in Brooklyn to be called a rapper. That has shifted. Those days are over. In fact, I'd imagine it's becoming the other way around. And I think one of the reasons for that, and Nigeria is a great example, is uh, that they believe in themselves, you know? They believe in themselves. They don't see a Nollywood movie and just criticize it because the lighting or the continuity is rough. They believe in the intention. They believe that, hey, this story, this folklore, these actors are going to teach me something, right? <laughs> and I'm going to get rich off listening to that. That belief system is why Nigeria is successful in its own right, why Nollywood is the third biggest, okay? And arguably, people will say, well, the quality is no good. But you've got to understand, the intention is so pure, it's feeding a generation, and they're going to get better, and they are getting better. Nigerian music, without a doubt, Afrobeats. Huge, huge. Owns, yeah. owns the market space, you know? So yeah. that's changed. And I believe it is something to do with us Nigerians believing in their own, you know? Instead of saying, I'm going to take this guy's one, let me see what my brother's doing. And if he can do it, I can do it. You get me? And that is a real, that's a very helpful, health, healthy cycle, you know? It's something us, us East Africans can learn as well. Sorry, <laughs> go call me. I'm sorry to jump in here. So I, I, just, I just want to riff on that, right? Mm. Because, because when, as just said, when, when, when we were young, I, like, I was a musician, right? And an actor. And when I'd walk into an acting space, they would never know that I was a musician because you couldn't tell people that. <laughs> and you, know, you had to separate your life into these neat. And here we now live in a time when everybody can be a slash artist. 
not just because they can, but actually because they have to. Mm-hmm. And it's, which means that actually the thing that we were forced to do, which mm-hmm. is twice, yeah, Idris, if you're lucky, it was twice and 10 times, bro. It, I now just say to my children that they have to be twice better, which is great progress. But actually the box or, or, or that place that we were placed in by our parents, our brilliant parents who made this country a warmer place, the thing that they demanded of us, that we were twice as good, has now given us an advantage. That wherever mm. we land in the world, we now know that we have a multiplicity of skills, that we're not just going to hustle on one front, but we're going to hustle on many fronts, and mm. we know that we have to be better than nearly everybody else to even break through. Now, that's coming home to roost. And we are landing wherever we land in the world, and we are showing our value. The question that that we keep shouting about in this country is, Britain, don't look to America and just look at its racism. Look at how many glass ceilings you put on us. It made us better, but it also had a cost and has a cost on our spirits and our mental health. And we don't want that for our children. We want our children to have their eyes straight ahead not having to worry about any of the other structural inequalities that are trying to keep them down. And I tell you what, we will solve the world's problems. Why? Because we have diversity of thought in our DNA because Mm. we have to to survive. Mm. 100. Uh, I feel like I'm, you know, at church slash mosque slash wherever you go to (laughs) to get your hype. Um, so I guess I've got a cheeky question um, for you both next. We're an all-black panel here, safe space, shall we say. What do you wish that you could say, like, to all the folk in the industries that you're in? And what do you, like, something that perhaps you wished you could have said when you were coming up or right now, like, unfiltered, what is the thing you, you want people to hear? Look, as, as I'm listening, as I'm thinking about this answer, to be honest, you know, a lot of my mind goes to things that I just have, you know, said to myself in the mirror and cursed a man out. You know what I mean? So hard that there's spit on the mirror. But I'm going to go away from that. And in actuality, <laughs> if I, you know, religious or not, but if you, if you take the concept of Noah's Ark, okay, and the Ark is taking the next generation forward. The storm has come and it has blown people left, right and centre. Moving forward, you you need to get on the arc. If you feel post the storm that, you know, some of the things that we all turned a blind eye to, that we all sort of swept under the carpet, that we, you know, were too afraid to outwardly speak up about, if you believe that that time is still alive, that time has passed. And the question is now, will you be stuck on the water, drowning with a lot of people who will stay there? Or will you be on the ark where people are just going to move forward to, to greener grounds? You know, and that's what I would say. And by the way, again, I'm an optimistic, but I'm also, I'm also realistic. Nothing's going to change overnight. That journey on the ark is a long, treacherous journey. It's a long one. But we'll get there. But you have to be on it to be there. And that's what I would say to, to industry folks, people that are in position of power to change policy, to change mindset, to change their own company policy. Get on the boat. Don't stay in the storm. That's what I would say. 
I can't. I, I love that. It's going to be my new mantra. Get on the art. Get on the boat, mate. Get on it, mate. It's beautiful. It does all the work for you. Get on the ark, baby. Don't be on the wrong side of history. Mm. Word. Mm. And if somebody, if somebody said to you, Kami, well, what is, what is the ark? What does that mean for me? I like you, you know. <laughs> you know, you know, you're thinking, you're going, you're going to dig deep. I mean, we're, we're here, right? I'm never going to get this opportunity again. The ark is what you want it to be. And I don't want to be weird about it. I'm not trying to be abused. But I mean, the ark for me, right? is the arc of the long arc of history. It bends towards justice. Get on the arc. Get on the justice. I see what you did there. You know what I did there? You like that one, yeah? <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? It's like, and, and, and for me, it's also, and that, someone said to me, you know, how do we bring down structural inequality? How do we bring down white supremacy, if you wish to call it that? Mm. How often say, listen, it's, it's, you know, it's the same as how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. But it's not just one person. It's everybody biting. It's everybody eating. And there is, that's why the arc metaphor is so good. We are amid the storm. Many people think that the storm's passed, but the storm is still here. After George Floyd, we just saw another two people killed. The storm is is still here. When we walk into our workspace, if we can, there will still be discrimination. When we look at the COVID results, we're still seeing that black and brown people are disproportionately affected. The storm is still here. You need to be on the inside of the ark if you wish to survive. That is from white supremacy to African ambition. Get on the ark. Dress, you give me something today, you know, bro. <laughs> What? I'm on that one now. I've got one more question uh, for you just before we take questions from the audience. And just a reminder, if you're watching, that you can ask questions. So get them get them in. But Idris, um, I'm curious, what does, what does, when, you know, we reach the end of that journey, what does that world look like? Paint me a picture of, does it look like black theatres and, and white theatres and brown theatres? Does it look like nobody really thinks about, like, what... What, what does it look like when we get You know there? what it, I mean, uh, you know, just to give a sort of, you know, try, try and be succinct about the answer, you know, that that future looks like Kwame's son at 15, at my daughter at 18, you know. That future is alive and well, you know. You, Kwame and I talk about generations because we've lived it. These kids haven't even lived it and they talk about their generation. They, they see themselves as a generation. We can call it X, Y, whatever you want to call it, but they see themselves like that. We didn't, you know, divide and rule. We got divided. We didn't see ourselves as a joint generation. They do. What does that mean is in the future, you know, for me, it feels like a place where, you know, sexism, uh, racism, you know, are, are, are um, dis- ultimate disqualification. Okay. As, as, as Kwame said, if you don't, if you make it to the table and you don't come with the X amount of the stuff, you won't be at the table. And I think if you imagine a generation where, you know, that is inbred into all industry. Okay. It is inbred into education, 
into the health system where you don't look around thinking you are being treated any worse than the next man. That's what this looks like. When you go into uh, uh, to sell a film, you're going in there because your generation of people are looking at you, knowing what we've come through and expecting your story to reflect it. Not, not that, oh, you know, we, we want you to come in here and just sell us so that we can make a lot of TV. No, we want you to tell us something. And that's what I imagine. And, 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 and that's what I imagine that the future will look like, will feel like. That there's a general consensus that, hey, we are all of this generation. We all deserve a chance. Let's give it. Let's do that. You know, richer are going to always stay rich. Poor is always going to stay poor. That's, that's just a factor of life, yeah? But the, 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 the reconfiguration of how justice and, and equality is, is, can be set is, 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 is definitely what success looks like to me. And Kwame, my question, my last question for you before we go over to the audience questions is you're, you're now in a position where you're a gatekeeper. And so you know the sort of like steps that people can actually take. So what are the, the folks watching? What are some steps that they can leave this conversation with to be like, all right, this is, you know, if they're a film director or a head of a theater, what do you want them to go out and do? I think Idris said it, you know, um, but let me, let me frame it from my mouth. Um, when the door opens, make sure you've got your luggage with you. <laughs> when, so that when the plane goes to take off, you don't have to say, I've got to go home and pack. Make sure you've got the thing. Or like, only do art if you must. Not because you have to, you know, but that you must. Because the rejection implicit for everybody in this is so much. It's so hard. It's so damaging to your spirit that when you step into this arena, step in knowing that you've got the goods. Mm. And when you take the rejection, I often, you know, sometimes when I was a, a younger writer, I would write something and it would be rejected and then I'd see something like it on the TV and I'd go and people go, and I'd go, first of all, I'd be sad and then I'd go, no, that means I've got it. That means if, if, if that broke through, I, then I got it. A friend of mine, he's an actor, and his father was an actor. And uh, he said, Dad, give me a bit of advice on how to navigate this world. And he said, son, there are a thousand reasons why you may not get an acting job. Just don't let your acting be one of them. <laughs> Very nice. All right, I'm going to go to... We've got a bunch of questions coming through. So the first question I'm going to take is from Gabriella, who says, what are your thoughts on diversity quotas? Do they help uh, or are they like tokenism? I, I'm going to jump in, if I may. I think absolutely. I think there is a time when you just have to say, let's just do it. Yes, they absolutely help. I don't care what quota let me into the door and a quota did let me into the door. It's when I'm on the inside what I do with it. And I believe you let us in, we will multiply. The next question, thank you, Kami, I'm going to give to you, Idris, is from Olu and says, do you think there's an inherent fear of an all-black cast in British film, TV and theatre? And if so, what do we do to change this? I mean, I wouldn't describe it as an inherent fear. There's definitely reservation and marginalisation that happens. You know, the, the quickest thing you say when, you know, someone presents an all-black cast is, well, feels a little bit niche. 
little bit. That's the first thing you hear. Okay. And yeah, that may be derived from fear, but I wouldn't describe it as fear. What we do about that is we, we, we tell our stories. We have to tell our stories. You, look, an old black cast means it's a story about this community, this family, this building, this junction. Okay. Those stories are rich. Those stories need to be told. Okay. We need to keep banging on the door and bringing them forward. Okay. There will come a time when your story's not, not taken because it's all black, but because it quite, it isn't deep enough. That's where we need to get. Right. So in my head, you know, taking these stories into commissioners, taking these stories into our artistic di- directors, you know, as Kwame said with the analogy of make sure that you come prepared, make sure it's good. Make sure it's good. Make sure it's relevant. That's really important. Not let's just have a black cast for the sake of it. Mm. All right. Thank you. Make sure it's good. So Kwame, we have a question from uh, Dupen, and I hope I pronounced that correctly. I'm really sorry if I didn't. But as an avid theatre goer, at least 40 times a year, and a person of colour, it's noticeable that the audience is, especially in the theatres of the West End, largely white. What can be done to get a more representative audience in? And often people say we need more POC on stage, but stories are stories, and I'm moved by Ferryman as much as I am by Hamilton. Um, first of all, I want to big you up for coming to the theatre so much. Thank you. Thank you. Um, <laughs> and, 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 and I think there's a couple of things. I, I, I think, you know, we are, as, as, as a species, we are very tribal. And, and, and so often we like to see ourselves. And when we see ourselves, that seeing of ourselves is an invitation to join. We actually, as black people, have had to not do that. Because of the lack of representation for many years, we've had to be able to see ourselves in other people. And that's widened our empathy. It's widened our, our actually it's decreased our sense of tribalism because we can go and see Hamlet if that were with a white actor, or we can go and see August Wilson and, and Jitney if that were black. Well, we can do that. And so actually what I think we have to make sure we do is signal to audiences that you are welcome into this you are welcome. Because, you know, there's not an Italian gangster movie. That, and I love me a gangster movie, right? But there is a moment in that movie when one of the gangsters says, you know, sell the horrible drugs to the blacks because they ain't got a soul. Or sell the better. This is every gangster movie. And what I have to do is go, I love this movie up to this point. Okay, I heard it. Now I've got to get back in after that bit. And I, and I do the subjective objective. But why? Because I like the job. And I think that's what we have to do as theatres. We have to continually say, you are welcome into this space. This space is not a white space. doesn't matter who's on the stage. And I think that we're doing that. I think we're beginning to see across London an increase in diversity of audiences, not just because of who is on stage, but who's running the theatres and what they're choosing to programme. Okay, thank you. Now, I've got another question from an Alexander that I'm going to couch a little bit, which says, you say you admire black women, but how do you respond when folks within the community feel disappointed by some of your choices? And as black men, how do you show that you're equally supportive of black women or address these kind of intersectional issues? Um, 
So, so just rephrase the, the first question again for me, because I wasn't, I wasn't sure how to answer that. Sure. I think it, the question's referring to some of the choices that, or the work that you've worked on in the past together. And I guess it's referring to how do you as very prominent black men in the arts and culture world respond when other parts of your same community, like black women, feel disappointed? No, actually, no, um, no. no. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> I, I'm going to... You know, everyone has the right to be disappointed. Mm. Like everybody has the right to be proud, right? And so when, whatever I do, if I look at my theatre, I look at the overwhelming majority of the, of the work that's been on my stage since I've been the artistic director has been diverse. The overwhelming majority of the work have been produced by women. The overwhelming majority of the work has had black women at the core, probably not the overwhelming, but certainly a majority has had black women at the core. Um, but I don't do it for the applause of black women. I do it because I'm my mother's son. I do it because I'm my daughter's father. I don't do it for anybody else's applause. I'm not, I'm not posing. I'm not actually signaling. I'm doing what I do because I think that's right. And I can look at myself in the mirror and say, sister, if you were disappointed in something that I did, then I'm sorry. I hope that it was a sin of omission and not commission. And now that I've heard you, I'll try and integrate that in my, into my thinking. I would like you to be proud of me, but you don't have to be. Possibly your criticism will spur me to greater things. But I am my mother's son. Mm, mm. I, I will just, just before you take the next question, just attempt to answer that too. I mean, I, I tell you the same, you know, I mean, if, you know, there's choices that I've made as an actor that have disappointed predominantly black women, that breaks my heart for sure, for sure. And, you know, my intention would be to, okay, let me see what I can do to, to do better. But I will tell you this, that, you know, if someone was to ask me what I think, I'd say, well, I, you know, disappointment is part of my game. I disappoint many, many people. If I didn't, I would have fans everywhere. I don't. Not everybody loves me. And that's a part of my acceptance. I accept that. And, and so... You know, for me, I wouldn't answer that question like, hey, I'm going to give you my reasoning as to my choices. But you know what? That's part of my game. I'm sorry you're disappointed. I appreciate you both answering that question, honestly. Um, the next question I have is from a Jason who says, a lot of black celebrities were called out as not supporting Black Lives Matter on social media and accused of being traitors to the fight. Do you think they received this condemnation due to their perceived silence? And how do you feel about sort of celebrities and engagement with issues like this on social media? Look, I think that celebrity politics is very dangerous and and it's become a real hotbed. It's become a real sort of topic at the moment. And, you know, listen, you know, my I probably am one of those celebrities this gentleman's talking about because I tend not to overly send my views on Twitter. I don't consider Twitter a place where my views on a subject should be, you know, acknowledged, celebrated or, you know, disappoint people. It's not the forum. It's social media. And I think people take it very, very seriously, especially in times like this. Uh, for me, uh, you know, I, I think that if we are looking towards our celebrities for guidance at times like this, when our leaders are letting us down, then there is an issue of focus on that point. 
you know, from me. Yes, I can use a platform to amplify things, and I do, but social media isn't necessarily the forum for it. I would say, you know, I, I, love, I love this generation, man, and I love that you have, you know, from Tunisia in 2011 to today, that we can use social media to mobilize and, and, and to advocate, and it's magnificent. And I was very proud of John Boyega when John, you know, to, to have... To, to put all that he has at risk by by speaking from his heart in the way he did. I wanted to cry. I literally was sat in this chair watching it on TV going, oh, my God. But also, um, you know, everybody does the thing that they can do. And I don't need someone to virtue signal by saying Black Lives Matter on a tweet or on any kind of social Show me your deeds. You don't know what's going on behind the scene. You don't know what movie they're negotiating right now that could actually put this right in the middle of a discussion where it might not have been. You don't know. We don't mm. know. So we can look for the virtue signaling, and that's great. And we can look, and I don't mean that doesn't mean that everybody who did it was. But certain people go to the media. Me, art is my weapon. If you want to see what I'm thinking today, look on my stage in a year's time. You'll see that. Because trauma, mm. I mean, um, is best served at a distance. Mm. Yeah, trauma best served at a distance. I'll remember that. This is a question for both of you, I think, from a Shekhar Bassi, and says, how do I, as a disabled screenwriter, filmmaker, actor, break through the independent filmmaking scene or get through to um, BAME-run production companies when there's a subconscious bias towards the very nature of disability and the lack of assumption of ability? Um, and I wondered if you had a take on that. Um, well, I mean, you know, again, it, it's about being, in my opinion, just you're going to weather the storm. We know the restrictions. Let's not talk about the restrictions and let's find a way through. Let's, you know, let's, let's be gravity. Gravity is your goal. Just fall towards it. Yes, there needs to be massive uh, reconfiguration of that for that, especially for uh, people uh, um, of disabilities. At Greendall, we stay very conscious about it. Some production companies we know do not. We know that. But it is around allowing that message that... Um, not amplifying that somehow within the industry. Um, brother, you know, send your scripts in to myself and Kwame. If they are not for us, you'll get a letter to say they're not for us. But don't give up at that junction. Send to the next man. Please don't allow your disability to, uh, and your knowledge of how you are not acknowledged, to stop you. you got to move forward. I love that. Thank you. So... A bit of a more light-hearted one from Kenneth at the Africa Centre. What song best sums up for you the moment we're in right now? What is the anthem of the moment for you? Get up, stand up. Why <laughs> <up>, you're right. <laughs> wow, that's a great... It, it was going to be a Bob Marley, and it was going to be... Um... <laughs> it, 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 it's not you a be song quick in this industry it, it, uh, no you caught me but i'm just gonna piggyback on that it is not just a song it's the entire album uprising and on twitter i put that picture up of that album if you listen to that album made almost 30 years to this time ago it is like word for word accurate and relevant so it would be that album big man 
Africa Centre, yeah, from uh, from back in the day, soul to soul. <laughs> Awesome. Well, I'm going to have to play it after this, I think. Um, so we've got a question from uh, Lizana, who says, when are we going to see a British version of Hamilton? Um, I, 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 I will say we will never see a British version of Hamilton. Um, but we will absolutely see, in a multiplicity of places, um, our truth made manifest through the lens of history and contemporaneous rhythms we will absolutely see that it's already happened there's another question around castings which says do blind castings work and that's from a derek and i want to kind of piggyback on that a little bit around the idea of should we be casting people in a colorblind way or not or what's your take uh, sorry if i may just jump in there um i, I think sometimes language in the english language is brilliant in that way is that the the that it can skirt the issue by and, and even state the issue. There is no such thing as colorblind casting because we cannot walk into a space and not see color. I know that many men are not uh, not as adept at color identification as women, as they say. But there is no such thing as color colorblind casting. What there is is purposeful casting. What there is is saying the best person for the gig gets the gig. And I think that that ultimately. When you walk into a theatrical space, and this is where we have a great advantage in theatre, film and television can be linear, magnificent, but linear. If I'm in Paris, you've got to tell me, you've got to show me the Eiffel Tower or versions of, right? But theatre is an abstract art form. If I say I'm in Paris, just saying it means you're there and then you do the work for me. That means that casting for me, I can cast anywhere and anything because it is a fantasy. And I'm not colorblind casting, I'm unconsciously saying, welcome mm. to this neurodiverse space where your abstract thinking aids your experience, does not take away from your experience. Idris, do you have a take on that? Uh, I, I, I do, but I, I'm conscious of time. But yes, I, I, I sort of agree. The, the writing process is where, you know, it, it is very key to this conversation. You know, it's very key. I grew up in a time where, you know, a black man was described as the sporty type, the rugged type, you know, and they didn't, yeah. <laughs> and they would say black, sporty type, rug, you know, and you're like, what? And it's in the writing. It's in the writing. When I get a script now, I don't look at the color. Um, I'm, I'm looking at, you know, if, if there's, you know, you don't want to misappropriate someone's culture by casting you know, sort of short-sightedly, right? But the writer, if, if the writing is good, gives you those clues, gives you that that template to, to do what you need. So I'm going to give you both one last question each before we wrap up. And maybe I'll come to you, Kaima, on this one. We've talked about how this kind of period of uncertainty, this Black Lives Matter movement or moment, uh, moment or movement, sorry, is going to bring about a new generation of artists. What do you think needs to be put into place so that we capture this potential? And that's from Gabriella. I, I think, first of all, we need a bailout from the government so that the government <laughs> makes sure that, that theatre um, can exist. The model mm -hmm. doesn't work with social distancing. The model doesn't work in the way it is right now. 
We need to be able to reopen our theatres, as you said, and, and allow performance to happen. We need a generation of gatekeepers who are going to come in with diversity and neurodiversity and intersectionality right at the core. And then we have to say, recognize that we are in the middle of a portal. And what we had before will never be rebuilt. And we don't quite know what we're going to build tomorrow, but we're going to build better. And with that, I think we'll be able to seize the day, carpe diem, or even seize tomorrow. I don't know what the Greek is for tomorrow. <laughs> to, to move forward and actually go, oh, I can take the ideas from everyone and everything and create the art world that we've been longing for. Mm. All right, Idris, the, the last question that I have for you says, I'm going to take spin on it slightly. It says, what would you like to, what advice would you give to your younger self? But perhaps the question is, what advice would you give to a younger version of yourself that was coming up today? My advice would be, you know, stay focused and see the prize the whole time. Um, you know, there's going to be times where that prize is really hard to get. Just stay focused and get towards it. That's what my main, my main um, uh, advice would be. And under that, in sub brackets, I would be like, save your money, okay? <laughs> be smart with your money, okay? Be genuine with your friends, okay? Like, make, make friends that you feel are going to be there for life. Don't, you know, just latch on to anybody and think they're going to do good by you, all right? Be careful of that. That's an important one. Especially with your rise as an actor, as an actor, uh, people tend to, your your love, the love people have for you is amplified and it's fake sometimes. So be, be wary of that. I would say learn a different language. Learn a few languages because I didn't. And any language I've learned, apart from my mum's Creole from Sierra Leone, I've had to learn in bite sizes for a movie. Lord, do I wish I could like speak French or speak Spanish. I would have jumped into so many different markets as an actor. I would have been, you know, it would have been a really door opener for me. And the one thing I would say to anybody that's coming up is, man, you've got to enjoy it. You've got to enjoy it. You've got to love what you're doing. You know, even the rainy days are going to be sucky, but you've got to love what you're doing. That's the... Like, if I'm honest, I took that advice as a young man to myself, you know. I, I, I had many times when I thought, I'm just going to give this up. This is not working for me. But I love it so much. I mean, I genuinely love it. I just, this, I, I wouldn't do it. I would do it if I didn't get paid for it. So if you have that same feeling for what you're doing, stick at it, man, and it will pay off for you. Ah, oh, the buzz in this last hour overflowing thank you both Kwame and Idris for sharing your time and your wisdom and your honesty your hope and your optimism you know in a time of a lot of change in a time of of great uncertainty in a time of a lot of pain I think for so many of us but also you know we're getting on that boat right yeah, we're getting on the arc <laughs> and, and, and Yasmin I just want to say thank you as well you you know Thank you for drawing out real questions, you know, drawing out real themes. Thank you for going deeper in, in, this, in this time. And, you know, you do it majestically and you, you should be a beacon for other women as well as men. So 
Well done. Oh, Thank you, Yasmin. That's so cool. I'm going to go home and be like, Idris said I did this majestically. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you both so much. Have a lovely evening. Bless. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.